You're listening to the N2K Space Network. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. It's never fun to start our show with bad news, but here we are. The first commercial lunar lander mission will fail, and now Artemis is facing further delays. For the record, our producer Alice predicted both of these things at the end of last year. Seriously, she called it. Go back and listen to her comments in the last show of 2023. Hence my new name for her, the Space Oracle. In any case... You know what obligatory phrase I've got to say when the news isn't so great, right? Yeah, space is hard. T minus 20 seconds to LOS, Today is January 9th, 2024. I'm Maria Varmazis, and this is T minus. NASA outlines setbacks to the Artemis missions. JPL lets go of 100 contractors. Astrobotics says there's no chance of soft landing Peregrine on the moon. But on a much brighter note, our guest today is Anarita Chandola, a textile artist who has transitioned into a spaceware designer. It's a great chat, so definitely stick around for the second part of the show. On to the Intel briefing for today. Humans will not be going to the moon in 2024. That's the main headline that came out of a media briefing today held by NASA. NASA is adjusting its schedule for Artemis II to September 2025, and that's the crewed mission that will go around the moon. And as for the Artemis III mission, it is delayed to September 2026. Artemis III, as a reminder, will land the first humans on the moon since the 1970s, if China doesn't get there first, that is. Meanwhile, NASA Administrator Bill Nelson says Artemis IV, quote, remains on track for September 2028. NASA says safety is the priority of the space agency and that they will launch when they are ready and not before. The space agency outlined areas that have provided sources of learning for them, First is from Artemis 1 and the performance of the heat shield, 
on the Orion capsule experienced an unexpected phenomena. The shield performed as expected, but there was some charring and debris that was not in the original models that need further examination. They want to achieve 100% understanding of the phenomena before putting humans in the capsule. Other areas involve hardware. Firstly, life support valves did not pass the Artemis III design flow. In particular, issues were found with the CO2 scrubbing. NASA says they're working to resolve these issues. The other issue is in the Lockheed Martin-built Orion crew capsule's batteries. Deficiencies were shown in the performance, but NASA says they do not have a path forward for resolving these issues just yet. The overall message was that further delays may happen with the Artemis missions, while crew safety remains their main priority. And we do have more bad news for the U.S. Space Agency. The Jet Propulsion Labs, or JPL, laid off 100 contractors last week. NASA says it will scale back part of the first-ever effort to bring pieces of Mars to Earth after a cost-cutting order from the agency's administration that U.S. lawmakers called short-sighted and misguided. The move is in response to budget concerns. That fiscal year budget is still under dispute at the U.S. federal government level. The Mars Sample Return Mission budget is possibly going to be set at $300 million in this fiscal year, just 36% of the previous year's $822 million budget, and less than one-third of the $949 million that the Biden administration requested for the program. Last week's layoffs at JPL of contract employees, along with a hiring freeze, are part of a lab-wide effort to reduce spending. In addition, NASA has ordered JPL to cease operations at the end of this month on a key project within the mission to bring a piece of Mars back to Earth. Specifically, it's a joint project with the European Space Agency and one of the biggest and most complex missions that's being undertaken at the lab. And an update on yesterday's roller coaster of news coming from the Astrobotic Lunar Lander launch. Astrobotic says that there is, unfortunately, no chance of a soft landing on the moon for Peregrine. However, Astrobotic believes that they do still have enough propellant to continue to operate the vehicle as a spacecraft. The team has updated its estimates and expects to run out of propellant in about 40 hours. That's 4-0. And that's a time estimate provided at lunchtime today, East Coast time. The team continues to work to find ways to extend Peregrine's operational life. Astrobotic says that they are in a stable operating mode and are working payload and spacecraft tests and checkouts. They added that they continue receiving valuable data, and the goal is to get Peregrine as close to lunar distance as they can before it loses the ability to maintain its sun-pointing position. Astrobotics Peregrine is carrying 20 payloads for government and commercial customers, five of which are for NASA under a $108 million contract. Voyager Space and Airbus have completed the transaction to create Starlab Space LLC, a transatlantic joint venture that will design, build, and operate the Starlab Commercial Space Station. Alongside the joint venture execution, the Starlab team completed the station-level system definition review, which is a critical milestone assessing the technical and programmatic accountability of the program. The space station is set to launch as early as 2028. Last week, we announced that Rocket Lab had secured half a billion, yes, billion with a B, dollar contract with an unnamed U.S. government agency, and now we've learned that that agency happens to be the Space Development Agency. 
Rocket Lab will be the prime contractor for a $515 million contract to design and build 18 Tranche 2 transport layer beta data transport satellites. The satellites are scheduled for launch in 2027. The U.S. Army has released a new vision document that stresses the importance of the land services space operations and cites an urgent need for more funding for both new capabilities and trained personnel. The document states that the Army's next fight will occur across multiple domains and that successful operations in and through the space domain will be critical to success. It also goes on to say that commanders must understand that space capabilities start and end on the ground and be fully aware of their importance in planning and operations. If you're interested in reading more, you can get the full vision by following the link in our show notes. Hypersonics company Venus Aerospace has partnered with NASA's Marshall Space Flight Center to achieve one of the longest sustained tests of a rotating detonation rocket engine. The aim of the partnership is to test rotating detonation rocket engines in a flight-like manner. Venus designs and manufactures hypersonic engines and aircraft for research, defense, and commercial missions. This partnership with NASA will accelerate Venus's research and development, allowing for proven scalability of its technology and advancing the team's mission to unlock the hypersonic economy. NASA and Venus both work independently, but they do collaborate on special projects to strengthen their respective research and development. Muon Space has been selected by the AF Works for a Small Business Innovation Research, or SIBR, Phase 1 contract, focused on weather intelligence, surveillance and reconnaissance, and operational mission planning. AF Works is a United States Air Force program with the goal of fostering a culture of innovation within the service. Muon Space will perform a feasibility study to determine the benefit of modifying its multispectral electro-optical infrared instrument to support the Department of Defense's cloud characterization observation capability. The U.S. Air Force and Space Force rely on timely, accurate cloud characterization and weather information for global defense and national security missions. Contract value was not included in the press release. The Einstein Probe, a collaboration between the European Space Agency and the Chinese Academy of Sciences, launched from China's Xinjiang Satellite Launch Center earlier today. The Einstein probe is aiming to survey the sky and hunt for bursts of X-ray light from mysterious objects such as neutron stars and black holes. The X-ray space telescope was launched on board a Chinese Long March 2C rocket and was placed into low Earth orbit at an altitude of around 600 kilometers. In the next six months, the operation team will be engaged in testing and calibrating the instruments, and after this preparation phase, the Einstein probe will spend at least three years attentively watching the entire X-ray sky. India's Bellatrix Aerospace has achieved a significant milestone with the successful launch of its Rudra and Arca propulsion systems on board ISRO's PSLV C-58 launch that happened on January 1st. Back in 2021, the company had tested India's first privately developed Hall Effect thruster, known as Arca, and subsequently unveiled the nation's first high-performance green propulsion system called Rudra in 2022. Rohan M. Ganapathy, CEO and CTO of Bellatrix Aerospace, said in the company's press release that he was, quote, elated to report that both Rudra and Arca are operating in space as per design specifications. 
that concludes our briefing for today. We give you the top lines, and you can learn more about the stories by following the links in our selected reading section of our show notes. We've included a piece on the NASA Tech Leap Prize for you, and you'll find all those links and more on our website. Just head on over to space.n2k.com and click on this episode title. Hey, T-Minus crew, if you're just joining us, welcome. Be sure to follow T-Minus Space Daily in your favorite podcast app. And also do us a favor, share the intel with your friends and coworkers. Here's a little challenge for you. By Friday, please show three friends or coworkers this podcast. That's because a growing audience is the most important thing for us, and we would love your help as part of the T-Minus crew. So if you find T-Minus useful, please share it so other professionals like you can find the show. Thank you. It means a lot to me and all of us here at T-Minus. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Our guest today is Anurita Chandola, a textile artist who has transitioned into a spaceware designer. Anurita starts by telling us a little bit more about her area of interest and expertise. I'm currently based in Reading, UK, and uh, my current work focuses on creating textiles and clothing for the future space travelers, um, especially Mars. And uh, there's a lot to do in this um, in this um, area and there's not a lot of research and that's what I'm trying to focus on to create sustainable clothing wardrobe for the future space travelers. Oh, that's so fascinating. Can we start with uh, how you got involved in fashion design and how you got interested in that and maybe how that eventually led you to space? But my understanding is it wasn't where you started. Um, yeah, you're absolutely correct. So I didn't um, I've only um, started working and researching on spacewear uh, since a few years. And uh, before that, I've worked in the fashion industry for a long, long time. Uh, I've worked in great brands internationally, and uh, I've worked in different countries before moving to the United Kingdom. And uh, and then a few years ago, when I realized how much harm just one industry alone could cause to the environment, I decided I could no longer be a part of it. Um, and then I realized that fashion was the only thing I knew. So uh, I wanted to continue being in fashion and use my expertise and skills. And space has always been my passion. But then I had to choose one of the fields um, that I liked. So I chose fashion, obviously. But then this was the time for me to actually combine both my fashions. Uh, I'm a very curious person. And I was just crossing the street one day and there was this lovely breeze and I was wearing a very nice skirt and uh, it just uh, danced with the breeze. And and that's when I thought, how would my skirt react in microgravity? And mm. uh, that's, <laughs> uh, yeah, that was just one one question, how, how this all started. And then 
that one question, one curiosity just became an absolute passion. And I've been um, creating lots and lots of things for um, the future space travelers. I love the creative process because you can't predict something like that is going to happen or spark an idea, but what an amazing thing to happen. So that one experience led you on this incredible path where you are doing all sorts of fantastic designs. Tell me a little bit about them, actually, because I don't know how, if, if all of our listeners are familiar. I'd love to hear more about what you've worked on. Um, yeah, so I actually went back to um, education and uh, got the opportunity to study at the Royal College of Art. And uh, that's actually where I started my research. Um, and uh, my idea was to create sustainable multifunctional clothing for the future space travelers. And uh, sustainability, why? Because I'd been in fashion and uh, I'd done a lot of harm to the environment. So I just wanted to create sustainable um, start with the idea of sustainability. Didn't know how I would do it. Didn't know how I would create clothes that would actually be suitable for Mars. Uh, but then at the RCA, uh, Royal College of Art, I started creating a collection of clothing for Mars. And then once I graduated from there, I got the opportunity to work on Britain's first Martian habitat, uh, which was based in Bristol. Um, and I was based in Bristol at that time. So I think it was just destiny that brought me to the city from India a long time ago. And uh, this project was actually happening there. And uh, so I just reached out to them and I had my lovely collection of multifunctional shape-changing garments for space. And then uh, we got into touch. We started talking. This Martian habitat was built by two artists called Ella Good and Nikki Kent and uh, this was a project that was a collaboration between artists, designers, architects, rocket scientists. And we all uh, came together and uh, I was leading the textiles and clothing for this project. And um, so I created multifunctional flight suits for the residents of the Martian house. I created sustainable textiles because when people would move to Mars, you would have your sofas, you would have your beds, you would have your curtains. How you how would you have them? What kind of dyes would go on them? What kind of um, there's there's actually a couple of key problems that you need to solve even before starting to think about designing clothes for space. Uh, one of them is sustainability, of course, uh, and then the other one is that when people would be moving to Mars, they would have very limited space to be able to pack everything that they own. And um, so they won't be able to carry lots of lovely outfits that we have here. They won't be able to carry fancy or um, dresses probably for special occasions. So I use technology and sustainable practices that have been followed for generations. And I created this shape-changing garment that the Mars inhabitants would be wearing for one occasion and uh, you would change its shape with the help of technology and it becomes a new garment for the next occasion. So this actually solves the problem of having to carry multiple outfits to space. And it's not just an outfit for special occasions. I also create flight suits that can be converted into sleeping bags or clothes to be worn in the interiors of the space vessel. And uh, all of these involve zero waste cutting method, which is a method where you cut the fabric, which is the first stage of creating a garment in a way that there's no waste, basically. The idea of having something that can transform into something else that can 
because we won't have Amazon on Mars that would deliver us <laughs> yeah. clothing for the next. Not yet, as far as we know. <laughs> not, yet. <laughs> not yet. Not yet. So, and, and it might be a long time before we can actually have our first made on Mars garment. So um, imagine if we just carried a couple of garments that constantly kept changing into something else would just solve the problem of carrying multiple outfits to space. And then the other really key important aspect to keep in mind is sustainability. But um, I, I I just don't say organic cotton is the solution, but even the fiber or the dye that would go into creating this garment would be very important. Um, I'll give you an example. It's a very short story. You might already know about it. Uh, but No, I'd love to hear it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. So um, NASA did an experiment a few years ago where they were simulating an environment that you would have on Mars. And a crew of six astronauts were living in the habitat. Uh, They were experimenting every day and successfully growing plants. And uh, the aim was to identify the minimum amount of resources you would need to survive in an off-planet colony. And uh, the crew was living in the habitat for 80 days and they broke all the records. And um, and to celebrate this um, event, NASA printed some iron-on T-shirts, just the regular T-shirts that we have here, and sent them into an enclosure via an airlock, um, exactly how you would have things on Mars. I don't know what they said, but probably, yay, congratulations. I'm not sure <laughs> what they said, but uh, I'm guessing this is what they said. And what happened next was very surprising. Uh, Within 24 hours, all the plants that they were successfully growing inside the habitat suddenly died. And uh, it took them a while to realize that the iron-on t-shirts that they had worn had released tiny amounts of formaldehyde that was just enough to knock the balance of the biosphere. I have never heard this story. My goodness! Fragile ecosystem, but Mike, talk about bringing something in that you could not have. I'm, I'm, I'm a bit stunned. That's incredible. Um, but wow, unintended consequences for sure. When you've talked about um, the sustainability and the and the different fibers, so this is where I'm going to be. I'm very out of my lane, but I I do home so. <laughs> Oh, and, good. Um, okay. <laughs> yeah. So I know I know a tiny tiny bit, very very tiny. But I'm thinking about. The, the type of fibers that would be used, I mean, would we just assume that everything is going to be polyester-based or, you know, plastic-based? Or are there natural fibers that make more sense? I'm really curious about this because I'm, I'm wearing cotton at the moment, admittedly, and I often wear wool. I live where it's cold, so wool is a big thing for me. Um, but so often when I think of the very functional, practical outfits that, you know, we've seen astronauts wearing, it's usually just, you know, a plasticky flight suit. Is that destiny or are there other options? I think there are other options. And uh, I also think that polyester is just not suitable for this world. It just wouldn't biodegrade. And uh, we've caused, just because I've worked in fashion, I know how much harm it's causing to the environment. And I also know that the dyes, we all are wearing those T-shirts here on Earth. Earth's atmosphere is much bigger compared to that what we have would be having on Mars or in that Martian habitat. But it doesn't change the fact that it is slowly absorbing these chemicals. So I think to be able to make polyester on Mars, you would need lots of natural oils or which which might not be possible there. Or so I think, um, and this is what my research is focused on, to use very sustainable natural fibers that would last you for for a long, long, long time. And then 
once they get really old, convert them into something else. And then once that has happened and it's come to end of its life, just feed them to your plants or they would biodegrade. Um, we've caused enough harm on this planet. We shouldn't even think about causing harm to another planet and also reconsider the way we live on Earth. And I think my research has unraveled so many things about my practice that I had in fashion that I just took for granted. I, uh, I've always been into sustainable fashion, but now if I, thinking back or going back into that time, I would do so many things differently. We'll be right back. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Welcome back. So how does one prepare for space? There's parabolic flights for astronaut training, analog missions to simulate environments, but what about virtual reality? The U.S. Space Force has just renewed a contract with Microsoft for just that. Under the $19.8 million contract, Microsoft will continue work on a simulated environment where guardians can train, test new capabilities, and interact with digital copies of objects in orbit. The training tool is a successor to the service's immersive digital facility prototype, which was developed last year. The new product is called the Integrated Immersive Intelligent Environment, or the I3E, and is an augmented reality space simulation powered by the company's HoloLens headsets. The tool hosts four missions that cover physics-based space environment and satellite simulation, space intelligence collection and scheduling, strategic orbital wargaming, and augmented reality space simulation. Given that Guardians aren't likely to physically train within the space domain anytime soon, simulations currently offer the next best thing. It's almost enough to get us lining up to become Guardians ourselves, although I'm probably a little too old. That's it for T-Minus for January 9th, 2024. For additional resources from today's report, check out our show notes at space.n2k.com. We're privileged that N2K and podcasts like T-Minus are part of the daily routine of many of the most influential leaders and operators in the public and private sector. From the Fortune 500 to many of the world's preeminent intelligence and law enforcement agencies. This episode was produced by Alice Carruth. Mixing by Elliot Peltzman and Trey Hester with original music and sound design by Elliot Peltzman. Our executive producer is Jen Ivan. Our VP is Brandon Karp. And I'm Maria Varmazis. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. Tomorrow.